Hello and welcome to Walk in the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the shadowy realms of the unexplained, the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. Your host? I'm Marianne. And I would like to welcome you to our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, today, whatever time it is, wherever you are living in this beautiful world of ours. So sit back, relax, and let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and discover what awaits us there. For millennia, man has looked into the heavens at night and seen the billions of beautiful stars creating such a spectacularly wonderful sight against the black velvet curtain of the sky, a sight not only enjoyed by humanity but also utilised for navigating the seas, for knowing when to plant seeds or to harvest crops or to fish, but also man has simply looked at the millions of planets that dot our night skies in awe and wonder. We've used the night sky for our purposes such as for astrology or studied them in astronomy. We've also wondered to ourselves and each other, are we the only life amongst all the billions and billions of planets we see in our night skies, are we? And if we are, what does that mean for humanity? And if we are not, what also does that mean for humanity? How is it even possible that we could begin to imagine that we are the only intelligent life amongst all of these planets we see in our night skies? Is that absolute arrogance on our part, thinking that we are all there is? Or if we do think in that manner, why do we believe that? Is it because we've been told it's so? Is it because humanity is so arrogant that we cannot imagine another life form, another species, or many, many different species that may exist in a cosmos that could be teeming with life? These are questions that humans have asked for thousands and thousands of years. But yet, amongst all the different cultures that exist on this planet, there are many, especially the native cultures such as the Aboriginals in Australia, or many of the different Native American tribes, or the Indian cultures who have records about ships in the skies, the Vimana, and great battles that were fought in the skies above their heads in a time where aircrafts had not even been invented. How is this possible if humankind is all that there is? Is it simply legends, stories created for whatever reason? Or is there truth in what is said about these star people? Are you willing to walk with me into this part of the Shadowlands. If you are, then make yourself comfortable, get your cup of tea, sit back and let's begin. (music) 
Thousands of people each year see unexplained lights in the skies day or night. They see flying crafts, unlike anything we are currently known of in existing public knowledge. Not only do some see lights or crafts that cannot be explained away as swamp gas, Venus, satellites, or any of the other normal excuses the governments and military trots out to placate people, but they also see and have interactions with the inhabitants of these ships. Many people are too scared to even tell another soul about their experiences, and understandably so. Governments have deliberately cultivated a culture of ridicule and treating people brave enough to speak about their experiences like they have a mental illness or making a joke of them and their experiences or threatening them and their loved ones into silence. There are many, many reasons why most do not speak out about what they have witnessed or experienced and these are all very valid reasons. However, there are some of us, myself included, who will speak out despite criticism or fear of ridicule or even personal threats or intimidation like my guest for the next two episodes. Some of us, because of our experiences, want to know more or want to help those going through these experiences or we simply want to remove the fear and stigma surrounding this subject. My guest is one such woman. Her name is Susie Hansen. Here's a little about Susie. Susie has had past careers in school teaching and in grief counselling, following a lifetime interest in UFOs. In 2000, she founded the UFO Focus New Zealand Research Network, UFOCUS NZ, a nationwide organisation that investigates UFO sightings and provides support for those experiencing alien contact. Susie has been involved in UFO research for about 40 years and she lectures internationally at conferences about New Zealand UFO sightings and her own alien contact and interaction experiences. She also speaks publicly on spiritual and metaphysical topics. 
As director of UFOCUS NZ, she lobbied the New Zealand Chief of Defence Forces during 2009 to 2010 for the release of the New Zealand Ministry of Defence UFO files, which occurred in 2010 to 2011. Susie's focus for the last decade has been on encouraging members of the scientific community to participate in examining the wealth of science-related detail contained in accounts of human interaction with extraterrestrial species, as well as aspects of UFO sighting investigation data. She believes that one of the major issues facing humankind in the future will be open contact with other civilizations in the universe. In the meantime, there is much to be learnt from humans who have already made this tremendous leap in consciousness and who have witnessed the vast array of potential benefits available to mankind and our environment through such associations. Susie runs a support organisation for those experiencing contact with extraterrestrial species and intelligences. She's also the author of a book called The Dual Soul Connection, The Alien Agenda for Human Advancement. Her book uniquely combines absorbing details of her lifelong alien encounters, along with a scientific examination by Dr. Rudy Schaud, Emeritus Astrophysicist, Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in the USA. Here is my guest, Susie Hansen. Thank you so much for joining us, Susie. I've been really looking forward to this chat with you today. And when your book arrived, I sat down and I couldn't put it down. Oh, thank you. No, it's really good. And I honestly started writing notes. Oh, goodness. Pages of notes to things that, you know, resonated with me. And after about page 50 in your book, I stopped. Because because there was just there was just so much like things I recognized for myself that happened to me as well. And I thought, oh wow, this is really, really cool. Really cool. And there are some things that and then I thought about what we had talked about before mm. about doing New Focus New Zealand and your personal experiences with star people and UFOs in separate episodes. Mm. And I realised you really can't separate them. No, you can't. No. Absolutely not. No. And this is what I'm saying to people that, you know, you can't separate contact and sightings. There are a lot of researchers trying to do that, but in fact, um, they're, they're totally entwined. Yeah, absolutely entwined. And the more I read your book, the more I realise that this is actually the case, that there is no, there's no way, there's no way I can talk to you about your group and talk to you about your experiences separately. I can't. Yeah. For my listeners, Susie Hanson, my wonderful guest today, wrote a book called Dual Soul Connection, The Alien Agenda for Human Advancement. And it talks all about Susie's personal experiences and how she started her New Zealand group, You Focus NZ. I'm actually not sure where to start, Susie. I was going to write down a whole pile of questions for you. And then I thought that the best way for us to do this is to let it flow organically. Yep, that's fine. <laughs> And I'll just jump in from time to time with questions or comments, because I'm not a professional interviewer. I'm just me. Yep, that's good. And I'm just me. <laughs> <laughs> we should be okay then. Yep, definitely. Before we get on to the UFO stuff, Susie, 
I first wanted to touch on the fact that all your life you've been a sensitive. Can we talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I guess from my earliest age, I can remember I could see spirit people and communicate with them. Um, I could see colours around people, flaring around people, not all the time, just quite spontaneously or periodically I would see that. I, I just assumed that was what everyone saw until I began describing it to my family uh, and discovered that wasn't what everyone saw. Often I would just know or believe that I knew what people were thinking and sometimes it wasn't the same as what they were saying. Oh, yes. Mm, mm. And I found that very interesting as a child. I guess I didn't always trust what people said because of this. So, you know, I, I there would be paranormal things happen. I would see lights moving across the room, small, big, coloured, you name it. And I guess uh, I communicated with animals. I could talk to my dog and sometimes I knew if an animal was in pain or suffering, I knew what was wrong with it. Or I could pick up from afar that there was an animal that was uh, in trouble or whatever. So that sort of got me into a bit of trouble as a kid because I I felt a little different from my classmates. Mm. And um, sometimes I felt quite lonely because I could not talk to them about these things. Mm -hmm. I remember trying to talk to a couple of friends when I was quite young, about eight, um, telling them about the UFO we had seen over the Bombay Hills and um, was met with derision, not interest or curiosity. So that kind of made me clam up yeah. and go into my shell. So, yes, I guess right throughout my life I've been like that, but um, particularly in childhood, the first time I really got some validation of what I was experiencing was when I was at my grandmother's house. My grandmother and my mother and my great-aunts were all psychic, if you want to put it that way, intuitive people. And my great-aunts and grandmother had belonged to the the early um, spiritual healing groups in Auckland and the early spiritual societies in Auckland. And so they were actually quite ahead of their time in many ways yeah. in that generation. When I was at my grandmother's, um, the family would congregate in a dining room around the table with a honey Madeira cake and cups of tea. And I would close the door and leave the dining room, go up the hall, the long hall up the centre of the house to to tinkle my, my grandmother's um, glass wind chimes by the door, which fascinated me. And as I um, shut the door behind me and was about to go up the dark hall, um, I saw um, a man creeping down the hall and he had a knife. And, um, and I screamed and out from the dining room came tumbling the great aunts and wanted to know what I'd seen and I described it. And uh, and the only thing comment they made was, oh, she's like us. Oh, yeah, she's like us. So from that, I assumed that there was something I was doing or experiencing that was similar to what I'd already identified with them from childhood, that they experienced things that a lot of other people didn't. Right. And years later, my mother told me that the reason why one of the bedrooms in that house was always kept shut and used as a storage room was because in the early days in Auckland, it was a very old wooden villa. Um, someone had been stabbed and, and murdered in that room. So um, I can only assume that I saw the uh, the perpetrator making his way down the hallway. Interesting. Um, 
So that was the first little piece of confirmation that I had that what I was experiencing had some validity. And certainly that would have made you feel more comfortable with your abilities. Mm-hmm. Right. So now let's start at the beginning of your UFO and Star People Encounters. And if I've got questions, I'll just jump in. Is that okay? Okay. So the beginning of my experiences? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm... I'm actually going to start at the age of 20 and go backwards, if that's okay with you. Perfect. Um, Because when I was 20 and I was a young teacher down in Hawke's Bay, I had an an experience that was at the time really shocking and traumatic. And it took, uh, but it really shook me and it really woke me up is the only way I can put it. So what happened was I'd been down to visit family friends on a sheep station uh, quite some some distance south of the city of Hastings, and um, I went down with a flatmate and in his uh, little sports car, and he went to visit friends. He dropped me at my friend's place, and I spent the day. About um, four four thirty, he picked me up, and we headed home. Now it was um, it was autumn. It was March. It was a lovely sunny afternoon, golden sunshine on all the paddocks. We decided to take, or he decided to take the back highway, not the main one through Waipukuro and and Waipawa, but the back highway closer to the hills. And when he said he was going to do that, for some unknown reason, my stomach churned. So it was almost like a an intuition or a psychic presentment of con- some concern or understanding or awareness. Anyway, off we went. So uh, we'd, we'd travelled about three quarters of an hour, I suppose, and we were going across a riverbed. So we came down out of out of a hill to a long straight that goes about two k's, two and a half k's. And as we were coming down onto the straight, we saw lights appear and uh, they flicked off and they came on again, they flicked off. We briefly discussed that it must be a helicopter or a an agricultural aircraft coming into um, a landing strip on a farm for the night and uh, we watched it and then it disappeared altogether. So the discussion was that it must have changed direction therefore we couldn't see its landing lights anymore until it appeared right next to us over the hills adjacent to us. That really got got us both rattled and uh, my flatmate virtually brought the car to a halt. The lights disappeared and appeared up ahead again and then disappeared again. So at that point we thought, okay, it's gone, so we whatever it is. So we started off in second gear and um, within a few seconds he said, oh, my God, whatever it is, it's coming up behind us. And within seconds our car was engulfed with the whitest, brightest, most glaring light you could imagine. Uh, it was accompanied by this really graunching sound that kind of rose in pitch and as it rose it became more and more impossible to maintain consciousness so I looked to my right and saw that my flatmate was no longer driving his hands had dropped to his lap and um, and I tried very hard to close the window which was a silly idea in my mind that maybe if I closed the window I'd be safe Uh, And the last thing I remember is my hand almost in slow motion going down towards the window winder and then uh, feeling the car lift off the road, not being able to see anything anymore except white light, which was really painful. I had my eyes slit right down so I could see and um, felt that feeling of being 
when an aircraft lifts off the tarmac and it leaves your stomach behind, and then I must have um, passed out or lost consciousness. When um, we next came to, if I can put it that way, or woke up, there was a loud clapping sound that seemed to wake me up, and uh, there was a feeling of flotation. I could feel my hair blowing around my face. I had very long hair in those days. And um, then the car hit the road, the lights came on, the motor started, and we were actually at the far end of the strait about to go over a one-way bridge, but it was now dark. Uh, it was very dark. In fact, uh, the late afternoon sunlight was gone, and we were thrown into a state of disarray, panic, trauma, as to what on earth had happened, where we were, what was happening. And um, we argued for quite some time uh, about what it was and what had happened to us. And um, my flatmate could could only stick to the idea that we'd seen a fast-moving helicopter. Right. And he had no explanation for why it was now dark. Mm. And we got home uh, 90 minutes later than we had intended. Our dinner was ruined in the oven and our flatmates had been worrying about us and wondering where we were. We had no memory at that stage of what had happened. So that was the thing that catapulted me into, at the age of 20, collecting sighting reports from people and beginning to look at um, the early experiences of contact that were starting to come out in New Zealand at that time. Right, right. So how does that relate to childhood? Well, in childhood, I'd had memories of um, dreamlike memories of being in rooms at night that were white with strange um, people is how I termed it because I didn't know how else to explain it being only a very young child. And But I had very, very clear memories of being taught how to do things with my mind being given tasks to do that I had to solve with my mind, but not just with my intelligence or my intellect, but also with my intent. So um, I was presented in these dreams with scenarios, for example, of seeing people I knew in the water with a shark. And in this scenario played out in, in the mind, I had to use my mind to turn that shark away, to make it turn away and therefore, you know, rescue the people, if I can put it that way. And when this task was over, it was like this would all disappear from my mind and these these uh, beings would be saying to me, good, good, that's really good, we're pleased. Um, at night, I would see golden silhouettes, three in a group of three always, by my bed, and uh, they would speak to me what I now understand to be telepathically because my mouth didn't move when I spoke to them and I could not see any mouth that they had because they appeared just as a glowing silhouette. Now, as to whether that was not to confront me or frighten me, I don't know, but that's how I remember seeing them um, in my room and uh, then they would say, we're taking you somewhere, you got, you're helping us. Um, and then I would remember no more. But the next day, very often, I would have this dreamlike memory of doing these kinds of activities and being able to see these, these pale, shadowy figures around me, but no real distinct features. Again, some kind of protection. Um, but I would know what they were thinking at me telepathically. Right. So in my teenage years, I didn't really have a lot of memories. And 
And I think that this is largely because um, they sometimes allow you to remember things. At other times, they can close that memory off to protect you in some way or so that you can get on with your day-to-day life Mm. because we're here to be a human, not some kind of ET uh, or something miraculous. We're just here to be humans and lead a life and and hopefully do good things. Right. But, um, yes, I I didn't have much memories, and this is possibly also because I was quite an academic child and teenager, and uh, so I was striving my best to to do exams and be successful at school. And I think maybe I was either left alone or um, just didn't remember what was happening. Mm. And then the next really profound one that woke me up is the 20-year-old experience I've just described on the lonely road in Hawke's Bay. From there, um, I had to try to assimilate these increasing experiences because the periods of missing time uh, I had other periods of missing time. I had uh, precognition and all the kinds of psychic or intuitive um, events that I'd had in my childhood, but they began to increase. And trying to lead a life as a young mother, as a young teacher, a wife, um, community member, belonging to different groups and committees, um, and assimilate all of these things happening in the background was very, very difficult, especially in the 70s to 90s in New Zealand, Mm. where these kinds of subjects were pretty much a no-no. Yes, people were interested in UFO sightings during that time because we'd had the Kaikoura lights, the Gisborne UFO flap, Ngātia landing, etc. But um, it was taking it a step too far for most people to for people to say that they felt they'd been taken on board a craft or had met um, entities not of this world. Right. So that was a time of um, struggle in a lot of ways. Um, But eventually I came to realise through a number of um, catalyst kind of experiences that uh, the the beings that I had had contact with in childhood that I really felt as if I loved and I felt as if they loved me were in fact the same ones that were contacting me in adulthood. So the fear and the nervousness of having two small children and trying to cope with these things began to dissipate as I realized that they were not here to harm me. They were in many ways assisting me and you know, I write quite deeply about that in my book of the different ways that I'd been assisted and what I come came to understand I was involved in along with thousands if not millions of other humans worldwide. Right, and I can understand the sense of loneliness you would have felt in those early years not being able to talk to people about your experiences. People don't realise how profound, how profoundly these experiences affect a person and to not be able to talk about it is very traumatic actually. How did you deal with those feelings that left you with Susie? Okay, well in terms of the experience when I was 20 on the lonely road, I I was quite fascinated by what had happened because as an eight-year-old child I had 
um, seen a UFO with my family over the Bombay Hills, south, south of Auckland, and hundreds of other people throughout the Franklin District and Waikato saw it as well, and it was reported in the New Zealand Herald. So uh, UFOs were in my reality, if I can put it that way, from the age of eight, having seen one, that something that just couldn't be explained. And so when this happened when I was 20, I guess I handled it a great deal better than my flatmate. He was a scientist and it really shook his worldview and his reality that something had happened to him that he simply could not explain in scientific terms. And it was quite interesting to notice the process he went through of trying to explain it away as logical things that could be similar but just did not fit all the aspects of what had happened to us. So he completely ignored the fact that it was dark when we when we came to or woke up, so to speak. Uh, he ignored that fact and focused on the two lights, which in his mind, moving fast. So it must have been a helicopter or it was an aircraft with landing lights. And I kept saying, but what about the fact it was dark and we'd lost all that time and we got home late and there was the wrong program on TV at, in the flat. Well, how do you explain that? And he would simply purse his lips and storm out of the room. And this went on for some time with me basically harassing him for to to come to a different conclusion, which he was just not capable of doing. And eventually um, he left the flat because that was the simplest solution for him was to get away from me and my persistent questions. Um, and we lost contact after that. So people handle it differently. It depends on your cultural background, you know, your family background. All kinds of things can contribute to how you perceive and experience, whether you see it as a religious revelation or, or something else. Right. So um, that's how I dealt with it, is that my background said this could be a UFO. Right. And in fact, that is the best fit. Right. So you worked through the mental process that was necessary for you to come to that conclusion. Yes, and I think um, this is the way I operate as a UFO sighting investigator, and I've always approached my contact experiences in the same light. So what is the evidence that's in front of me? How does that match this, this logical explanation or that logical explanation? If it doesn't match, then what else could it be? So it's a matter of process of elimination. You know, I, I'm very cautious and very careful about how I look at contact experiences. And uh, I have spent year, decades going through my experiences and looking at, at um, what was happening at the time and what evidence there is to back up what I experienced. And there's a very good example of that that happened when I was living in the, the seaside harbour village of Omakuroa, just north of Tauranga. And I'd had an experience at one night. I woke up the next day and I remembered um, holding a telepathic conversation with a group of three greys in the, the hallway of our home. And they told me I was going with them. I remember being taken through the glass front door. They didn't open it. We just went through it. And most experiencers and abductees report that kind of activity. And I recall being floated along the road because they were in a hurry. So I wasn't walking. I'd been uh, uh, levitated above the ground and was being floated. And I can recall going past letterboxes and seeing people's um, uh, 
launch that they go fishing in covered with canvas on the front yard, etc. All of the things that are in the roadway outside my house and down the road. And I recalled being floated across some shallow water from a short road and into a, a big opening in a craft. And then I don't remember anymore. A few days later, my friend in the village rang me up and said, have you been down to the end of Beach Road and seen what's in the water? I immediately thought of you, Susie. I thought maybe your mates have been to visit you because this was one of the very few people I divulged my experiences to. Right. And um, I said to her, well, what's down there? And she said at low tide, there were three circles visible in an equilateral triangle, there were raised spheres, semi-spheres on the floor of the harbour in the mud. A lot of the community had been down there chipping away at them, trying to see if they could break bits off them. They didn't know what they were. They were in a perfect triangle. They were about a metre and a half wide, and it looked as if something had landed and suctioned up the mud and burned, you know, dried it, dehydrated it, so to speak, so that it was like concrete. And, of course, Beach Grove is just down the road from my house. It has a boat ramp at the end, and it's shallow water out over the mud to where, obviously, that craft was waiting to take me on board. And um, that's that kind of evidence that you're presented with that uh, makes you think twice and realise that you're not completely crazy, but there is something happening here, and and, uh, you really need to look closely at it and not avoid it. Right. Well, that's kind of, when I read your experience in your book, I thought, oh, well, to have physical evidence to match what you knew happened to you, that's actually pretty rare. Mm. Pretty awesome to have that. Of course, it validates for you on a human level what you experienced. Yes, that's right. Yeah. When I read your story talking about being on the ship, the white corridors, it triggered memories for me and I remember vividly curved white corridors with this really really bright light but it didn't hurt your eyes yes yes not straight they were curved very interesting and a couple of other things your book talked about that I have conscious memory of like the lectures learning to do things with your mind to move things in the air with your mind and I remember giving lectures to people as well right you do yeah yeah I remember that excellent (laughs) yeah yeah I absolutely do I I don't remember what the lectures were about but I remember standing in front of groups of people and addressing them and probably for me the most profound experience is one I had the day before I saw the men in black I personally had a men in black experience when I was a toddler. Well, not a toddler. I was a youngster, but I remember it very clearly. Mm. I specifically remember it because these men said to each other, she's too young, she won't remember. Nobody ever tells me what I will and will not remember. (laughs) And so I've never forgotten it. Right. I was between four and six years old, and we lived in Palmston North at that stage. Do you remember Frosty Jack ice cream? (laughs) Yeah. We lived opposite the Frosty Jack ice cream factory in Palmston North, and on Fridays they used to chip the ice out of the freezers and put it on the street to melt. Right. Of course, they'd never get away with that these days. No. (laughs) 
<laughs> then it was okay, and they put it on the streets to melt. There was this one day I was home from school, I don't know why, I think maybe I was getting over an ear infection or something like that, and I was out on the front lawn playing because it was early winter or late autumn because it was cold on the ground, but the sun was warm. I remember it was warm on my face, and it was around morning tea time because all the guys were out the front having their cup of tea, and one of the guys I remember was leaning against the pile of ice. All of a sudden we hear this this loud roaring, whistling, really high-pitched sound that got louder and louder and louder, along with a pressure change and air pressure change, which really hurt my ear because I'd burst my eardrum not too long previously, so it was quite painful for me. And I covered my ears. When I looked over at the people in the street, they were doing the same and pointing up in the sky. And I turned to see where they were pointing and descending right directly over my house was a classic saucer-shaped UFO. Mm -hmm. It was about as wide as the section of my house. I don't know how high up. It can't have been too high because it was very, very big. Completely overshadowed the house and I don't know how high above the house it was because I was only a kid so I can't estimate. But it was low enough for me to see details. Mm. And it stayed there. I don't know how long it was there. And then it went whoosh, straight up and was gone almost instantly. But I remembered later that this bluebeam had come down, engulfed me and lifted me on board the craft with them. Mm. I had a face-to-face -face encounter with the beings at that stage, but I didn't remember that until later. And I didn't put the two and two together until... Actually, I was sharing my men in black experience with members of my Facebook group. I have a Facebook group called Walk in the Shadowlands, mm. where I talk about my experiences and all things paranormal. And then I twigged, and I thought, oh my God, I just realized that experience I had on the ship when I was that young was when that happened. And then the next day, these men in black turned up on our front doorstep. I remember it very clearly. Mm. I specifically remember it because these men said to each other, she's too young, she won't remember. Nobody tells me what I will and will not remember. <laughs> and so I've never forgotten it. I read in your book that you also had a men in black experience. Well, I've never actually called it that, although other people have, um, but I have had a number of experiences like that. Uh, for example, our, our house during various periods of me going public about certain things in New Zealand, for example, our house has been watched and that's not me being paranoid. It's actually the neighbours telling us, do you know your house is being watched? You know, they've tried to approach the guys in the car who simply wound the window up and drove away. So incidents like that, and um, I did have a very unusual experience when I spoke at the UFO Congress in uh, the States in 1999, where I had two people who, who were posing, shall we say, as a Mexican couple. Mm. And uh, one of the speakers at the conference was a well-known remote viewer who's written a book, David Morehouse. And, um, and he apparently recognized them as some kinds of uh, disinformation agents who, who do the circuit of the conferences. 
and um, they they came asked to have a private interview with me and being quite naive back in those days new to the speaking uh, overseas I I said yes okay and and allowed them to come to my room not realizing that most other speakers met people in a public place like a cafe or whatever so um, they came to my room and basically had me trapped there for nearly an hour and a half um, and to start with, they were quite conversational and we had a nice conversation about different things to do with contact and the worldwide scene. And then their conversation became a little bit uh, more creepy and then it became more sinister. And for the last half hour, they blocked my way to to the door um, and they basically harangued me for 30 minutes about how I should stop speaking um, because certain things might happen to me if I didn't. They knew that I had two sons and they uh, they made reference to the fact that I wouldn't want anything to happen to them. Wow. And um, they beat their fist on the table and said to me, go home and stop talking about these things. So. Um, that was quite scary and the following day my husband and I after the conference finished did some went on a day trip doing a bit of sightseeing we when the vehicle came to pick us up there was this unusual looking guy sitting in the front seat next to the driver who was taking us to the car rental depot to collect a car and she didn't speak to him at all he didn't speak to anyone uh, we thought that that was odd that she only directed her conversation to us when we pulled up outside the depot, she said, I'll go and do the paperwork for you. You can come in when you're ready. And I was feeling pretty despondent about what had happened with these two people who'd come to my room and thinking, well, just as I'm starting my public speaking, it looks like it's over. So this man, I'll call him a man in inverted commas in the front seat, turned around and looked at me and said something. He said, they always look after their own. And then he got out of the car and he went to the door of the depot. Uh, when he said that, it was as if the air was electric. He was very white-skinned. He had wispy white hair, china blue eyes, very old-fashioned clothing and very warm clothing, hot clothing for the kind of temperature we were in in Nevada. And I ran after him because I wanted to ask him who he was and what he meant by that. Went through the door and I ran in a few seconds after him, and he was nowhere to be seen. My husband and I searched. We went into the public toilets inside the building. We searched the entire building, which was like one large open office. We asked people if they'd seen this man come through the door, and no one had seen him, and he was nowhere to be seen. That is probably one of the most unusual, unexplainable events that's happened in my life, but it made me think, okay, I'm going to carry on with my speaking and, and not, it's, I'm not going to be deterred from what I want to do. Good for you. Your physical description of him certainly sounds like a typical sort of man, although apart from he wasn't wearing a suit, but his complexion, his sparse hair certainly sounds like a typical man in black encounter, even though he wasn't in black. So we've got We've got quite a bit in common, Susie. I think so. And it's very interesting. That's really interesting, Marianne, because you've made a couple of points there. Um, the first one is that we've got shared experiences and there's many other New Zealanders also who've got those same sort of experiences. But you also mentioned the blue light. 
And um, I've also seen that blue light. Um, saw it coming in in a big, huge shaft into my bedroom once, right onto my son's bassinet. Wow. And this is where we'll end this part of our conversation for this week. Please be sure and join Susie and I next week as we continue our discussion talking about Susie's work with Ufocus NZ and the team of amazing people that she has working with her. If this episode has brought up any memories and issues for you, then you can always contact Susie's support team through www.communicatorlink.com. Or if you want to talk to me about your experiences or memories, you can email me at shadowlands at yahoo.com or through the podcast's website contact page, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. Just be kind to yourself and know it's okay to remember and you most definitely are not alone in your experiences. musical score today is called Private Reflection by Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. For more information, check out this episode's page on the podcast website www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. If you have any suggestions for topics you might like me to cover in upcoming episodes, then please don't hesitate to contact me, or if any of you have any questions or any comments that you'd like to make, or experiences that you might like to share with myself and my audience, then just email me at shadowlands at yahoo.com, or if you're a member of Anchor at anchor.fm, then you can leave me a voice message via their platform, which I could include in an upcoming episode. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a positive rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts or on your chosen podcasting platform. Who knows? You may hear your review read out at the end of one of these podcasts. And of course, so you don't miss out on any episode, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast is available on all free podcasting platforms and iHeartRadio as well. If you don't have a smartphone, then you can listen to the episodes from the podcast website. For those hearing impaired, there is a full written transcript on each episode of the website, so you don't miss out at all. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your workmates about our show. Encourage them to listen and to subscribe also. The more, the merrier. Please consider supporting this show on Patreon.com. You can check out the link on our website. Check out our Facebook page, Walking the Shadowlands, our Instagram feed of the same name, and our Twitter feed, at Shadowlands10. Like and follow for hints on our upcoming episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Tonight, today, wherever you are in this beautiful world of ours, we'll see you this time next week. Thanks for listening. 